McClellan was too good a man to command an army in this country. That's what General Joe Hooker said in 1863. Was it true? We'll talk to the founder of the McClellan Society, Dmitry Rogoff, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Are you a health-conscious, motivated mom who wants to work part-time from home? Do you want to enhance your family's income, get out of debt, experience financial freedom, create a flexible schedule, set your own hours? These benefits are available to top performers of this 34-year-old, solid, stable company. www.lisastafford.com Achieve personal wellness goals and make a difference in the lives of others. Receive coaching from the top achievers at this company. For more information, go online, lisastafford.com. Wherever you are, you deserve World Spa, a day spa for both men and women specializing in Western therapies with age-old Eastern techniques. All World Spa providers are professionally licensed specialists in their fields. We provide spa treatments for all schedules, from as little as 30 minutes to all-day programs. World Spa also has a spiritual library where you can relax and enjoy our collection of books, videos, and audio tapes. World Spa is open seven days a week by appointment and features a variety of special treatments, spa services, facials, exfoliation, and much more. We also offer products such as beauty and skin treatments, health drinks, herbal teas, and food supplements. World Spa also accommodates groups of five or more so you can make it a full and special day. Come enjoy the World Spa difference. Call us today at 619-624-0506 or visit us on the web at www.worldspas.org. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. creator of the website Civil War Bookshelf, an online journal or blog, and also founder of the McClellan Society. Dimitri, in a previous segment, you mentioned something about narrative. And on your blog, you often contrast narrative or storytelling as a, I use it in a pejorative sense, as a way not to write Civil War history. Right. Um, What's happening in in, uh, Civil War history, uh, in probably in any history, but Civil War history is a field so rich in documentation on so many issues that we have, um, in any given topic, we have a complex of controversies. And those controversies uh, can be conveniently treated as closed in order to to advance a story and and literary um, needs. 
where they can be treated as open and interesting and worth examining and looking at. And um, you go down one path, the analysis path, and it's psychedelic, man. It's it's kaleidoscopic, and you're looking at these things. And if you don't have enough judgment to make uh, evaluations of evidence and, and reach sound conclusions, then maybe you're going to be overwhelmed. Uh, but you go down the other path of narrative, and you're dealing with literary choices that have been made to move the story forward, move the reader forward. And um, those can still be managed um, a certain way, with a certain uh, delicacy and a certain respect for the reader. The problem is, is there are not many authors who will do that. And one who did, I think, was Douglas Southall Freeman. And he had um, footnotes galore. <clears throat> he had bits of correspondence, you know, that he published in his books with surviving members of this or that and, and all sorts of explanations. So it was, it was a case as you were reading his book, you knew that he was an advocate for a point of view and that he was managing a storytelling process. But he had a certain delicacy towards you, the reader, that he expressed in, through footnotes and endnotes and uh, bibliographical comments and he, he didn't want you to feel that he was getting over on you. And I just, um, I just see a sort of cavalier approach in so many of these books, which not only do, is the story um, speeding past controversy, but uh, I see the authors manipulating the readers the way a Hollywood director will manipulate the audience with music rising in the background and and, and certain visual uh, effects to, to uh, offset the actor's lack of um, uh, performance in a certain situation. So, well, do you have anyone in mind? Let, let's pull no punches. I think um, Stephen Sears is essentially, when in his stories or his pieces that he's writing, and especially with regard to McClellan, he's basically uh, using. Um, and I would say his his uh, literary gifts are, are the most advanced of the current crop of consensus historians. He's using certain literary techniques to create uh, identification uh, with the reader. The reader is asked to identify with certain um, people and and uh, and to uh, not identify with others. Actually, to to it engenders a hostility in them, and it becomes very personal. Uh, he actually. Um, in controversies and commanders, he actually referred to McClellan, who was a historical figure, as "quote unquote" the Captain Quig of the Civil War. If you go in writing with that conclusion in mind, and you're the you're the product of uh, a youth spent in the editorial boardrooms of American Heritage, where the where the editorial um, policies and ideas about the Civil War were highly defined, it's going to be hard to control your natural literary gifts. Uh, from mm, behaving rhetorically vis-a-vis -vis your your uh, nonfiction reading audience, and so he's doing things to enlist people into emotional states, and then he delivers payoffs connected with the emotional expectations that he's created, which is what literature is about. Uh, on the other hand, you have someone who I regard as um, quite clumsy as a storyteller or as a literary person, like James McPherson, and what. What he winds doing winds up doing is he will simply he won't actually manipulate the reader's emotions particularly one way or the other, but he will try to create effects by hyping certain information or effects. So 
to take the example of um, McClellan's men finding the lost order in Maryland, um, Sears will write about that very cunningly because he's a very skilled rhetorician, and he'll he'll say that, um, for example, that uh, not even the Napoleon the Great had ever found such an opportunity or had been presented with such an opportunity, and. You know, for the experienced reader like you or me, we start rifling through the Napoleon file in the back of our mind to see if that's true or not. The naive reader just blows past that and says, oh, oh, man, and and may generalize and say, oh, he's not speaking about Napoleon finding an order. He's speaking about a historical circumstance that is unique. McPherson, who seems quite tone deaf in a lot of respects, will look at that and raise it to the next level, and he'll say, never in history was such an opportunity uh, presented to a battlefield commander in the midst of a campaign. And both statements are, I, I don't know about the Napoleon statement, but certainly uh, it would, it's a horrible mistake to generalize from something like that to the next level. But hyping it, you basically create a dramatic tension, an expectation now, oh, look, he's, he's found something great. He's got to do something great. And it's, it's all very simple, and it's not, it's ahistorical. It's not historical. I mean, um, uh, I'm, I'm just I'm opening a, a battle cry of freedom as we speak here and, and seeing how McPherson describes the situation. And he does my, say on, on September 13th, their non-gambling commander McClellan uh, hit the all-time military jackpot, which uh, is a little short of saying it's never happened. I, I suppose. Uh, oh, he. I rhetorically he was saying. That, I could he, be wrong about this, but but he may have in, said it elsewhere too. He's in it. I'm. What my, my reconstruction is from the comments he made in his anniversary edition uh, of uh, or anniversary keyed book about Antietam, mm-hmm. which I had to review for the the Trenton Times way back when, and I had been kind of tracking these uh, comments because I'm looking for a link, a feedback loop between Sears and and McPherson, and so I'm always. And, and some of these things can be out of sequence, and therefore I can be wrong to, to attribute McPherson's comment on on um, reading Sears. Well, but but it, it is it's a kind of a clumsy hype that uh, that has no has no place in a historical evaluation unless it's a statement of of fact that never before had this happened. And and even that's kind of it, it should put off a, a judgment call uh, and maybe an exaggerated one. But let me let me ask you about this issue of narrative as opposed to analysis. Uh, I find it interesting because within the historical profession, in the last I don't know ten to fifteen years, there's been a, a call, not often heeded, that historians need professional historians need to return to narrative because outside of Civil War publishing and, and history generally, much of what gets published is purely analytical and is essentially unreadable, uh, even to other professionals, it's a chore to get through. And to the general public, it's absolutely opaque and, and useless. And it, it spawned the fact that we have now a, a, a sub-genre of history called public history, uh, history for people as opposed to history for each other, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I, narrative but, has it's come back into fashion. Well, and I... You know, I got this from a brother-in-law who's a Chinese history scholar. He's saying, oh, what are you doing? You're writing about McClellan? I said, yes. Uh, are you going to write one of those um, 
oh, Samuel Elliott Morrison type sweeping narrative history. Oh, that, well, boy, the, the field really needs that. So now, now who's saying this stuff? Um, it, it's coming from two places. It, it, well, the field needs it, but you're absolutely right. The people who are writing these narratives, the, the kind that you're finding at Barnes & Noble on, on the shelf there that are not necessarily well-researched or well-judged, uh, but are popular, are, are not coming from within the ranks of professional historians. Coming from journalists. Well, um, well, well, no. And and there's a there's I you you correct me on this, but it's my uh, feeling as an outsider that there's a schism among professional historians. And I I sure know which side of that fight I'd be on if I were a professional historian. And and the schism is that you have the. Um, you have what are essentially magazine writers coming out of American heritage publishing in the 60s and getting um, historians who write like magazine writers, getting commissions, fat commissions from American heritage to write things. And pretty soon as the, as the wheel turns and time passes, you've got a James McPherson running the uh, American Historical Association, and you've got um, people awarding each other Pulitzer Prizes for outstanding narratives. And pretty soon there's this um, kind of uh, uh, professor or uh, teacher who's um, been made by narrative history. And then there's uh, all these guys working in uh, the vineyard, toiling in the vineyard of analysis and monographs and research and so forth. And those, I, I, I'm uh, going to take a sharp disagreement with that okay. in our last few minutes and, and suggest that that's not how it looks from the inside, okay. to the extent, at least within academia, that if someone like McPherson... Uh, McPherson, for example, who wrote Battle Cry of Freedom, wrote it as part of the Oxford series of yes. American history, like Middlecoff's uh, book on the revolution and so on. Mm -hmm. And he caught lightning in a bottle. It came out at the moment, the right moment with Ken Burns and became a bestseller, but it was never, no one expected that, least of all him. Yes. And the reaction of the rest of the profession, as, as he stated in, in the introduction to one of his essay collections, was to look at him askance. People are reading your stuff. It must not be very good. Well, and not. And, he, and, and they're right. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I, I'd like to be close like him, to be honest. Um, the thing but, of it is, is, is what he did was a, a workmanlike academic thing, which was aggregate the best thinking available at the time. Which is what that series is supposed to be. Exactly. It's not supposed to be original research. Absolutely. And he no. did it exactly right, and he exactly. got it together. But when it caught lightning in a bottle, it breathed life into these old interpretations that should that were actually on their last legs in the 70s and 80s they were not they were not getting good publishing numbers they were not uh, stars those uh, those authors anymore and you know that whole thing basically by aggregating that work and presenting that viewpoint he gave it a second lease on life and right now another 20 years has run out and hopefully civil war publishing will take a turn for the better now and begin experimenting with new views, new ideas, and new ways to deliver. And, and I think that is happening very much. I think we're seeing a lot of new thoughts. Uh, you mentioned Mark Grimsley a couple times as, as a good example of someone who's uh, taken new approaches. There have been a couple new uh, regimental histories either already out or soon to come out uh, in 2005. Or well, so. you, you have yourself. You've yourself taken essentially an analytical premise and applied it to Buell's army. And that's different, you know, and it invites a dialogue and it invites analysis. It's not my way or the highway. No, and, my, and I, I do think most good historians will, will adopt that, um, that, that, that attempt to engage and, and debate. One thing that, that I find distinguishes people who don't know what they're 
doing in in writing is is just that tone you you, you suggested that my way or the, or the highway or sort of an attempt to affect a definitive expert tone this is how it is the more one knows about any subject the more one realizes how little they know and 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 the less confident uh, one becomes that this is the definitive work I know somebody will write something more and better about the Army of the Ohio any day now uh, and and that's how it's supposed to work. That's how the process goes. And um, it's it's a it's a resource rich field in terms of its uh, primary materials and and the accessibility of those materials. So there's no excuse for the the good historians not not uh, to make hay while the sun shines and no. to get stronger. And and I hope and I hope that'll happen. I I think that uh, readers can help themselves also with these materials, and they should. Um, I, I would agree with that. I think the, the discerning reader is the, the, the best hope for the future. The, the discerning reader who, who goes out and spends some damn money on books. <laughs> Absolutely. All, all listeners, please take note. Uh, please take note. Uh, yeah, I always get this uh, aggravated uh, feeling when somebody on some forum says, yeah, I'm waiting for my library to get that. No, no, go to the bookstore and get it. You know, support your, uh, your, uh, your good authors. And... Um, yeah, and I, that's basically my position. That's what I, where I am. That's where I, I'm waiting for the wheel to turn, and um, and for the McPherson and uh, old-time Civil War interpretations to pass from the scene and and, and to get the good stuff going. Well, I, I'm say I'm, I'm more sympathetic than, than you to, to James McPherson and his work, but I do share your view that that uh, the wheel does need to continue turning that old uh, interpretations have to be revisited fresh by every generation, informed by the new experiences that we have, the new sources we've uncovered, the new perspectives we've gained. Uh, that's how history has to continue to operate. I've been uh, tracking uh, Civil War publishing since 97 in a website called uh, Civil War Book News, and I can tell you that great things are happening in publishing. A lot of fresh voices, a lot of new faces, and it's very encouraging. Well, I'm, I'm encouraged, and I've, I'm very encouraged to uh, read your blog, which I do regularly now, see what's happening in the Civil War world. I encourage all our listeners to do the same. Dimitri, thanks so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Gerald. And thank you all for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Next morning the burning sun rise beneath the east.